It's just been such a um, neat experience. I just love it. I just love uh, getting up to preach after listening to somebody spill the Lord's Prayer out of their spirit like that. Um, I mean, every single week leading into the sermon, we've had some sort of expression of the Lord's Prayer and to hear uh, to hear somebody reflect it back, this prayer that God has taught us to pray is just such a beautiful thing. Because this is, I mean, this has been the goal of the whole series, right? Has been to get the Lord's Prayer into our spirit so that the Lord's Prayer comes out of our spirit as this beautiful and succinct depiction of what it means to live in a relationship with God. Because uh, really, that's what the Lord's Prayer is. is what we've been talking about this whole series, about how the Lord's Prayer really is a description of what it looks like to live in a relationship with God, which is why when we begin to pray, we begin by saying, our Father, uh, who is in heaven, we remind ourselves that the God that we are entering into relationship with is this infinitely good and loving and attentive divine parent who is present with us and present to us all the time, who just also so happens to sit on the throne of the universe and be infinitely strong and capable and sovereign at the same time that we are invited into a relationship with a God who is all loving towards us and all powerful on behalf of us in the world. And so we pray to this God, hallowed be your name. Would you show yourself, show us who you are in me and in my life and in our community and in the world. Show us what you're really like, how good and beautiful and loving and just and powerful you are so that people will run to you rather than running from you, which happens when your kingdom comes and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. It happens in as much as God is allowed to be in charge, be in control of what happens among us so that he can fill our life and our community with love and life and joy and healing and hope and abundance and relationship and justice and peace. Just create a community of peace. And as much as we are committed to doing his will, we pray that we would be his will doing, kingdom coming kind of people so that people will see how good and beautiful and loving and just and powerful he is and they will run to him rather than from him. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. That's what it means to have your life oriented towards God in a relationship with him. And then so last week we talked in the first part of the second half of the prayer about what we ask for from God in response. If we're going to be his will doing, his kingdom coming kind of people, if that's what we're going to be attentive to, then we need God to be attentive to us. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us 
everything that we need to be the people that you've called us to be and to do the things you've called us to do. Give us food and clothing and health and safety and give us a place to sleep and a place to work and a stable family and a supportive community of friends and enough money at the end of the month to make the ends meet. Not too much. We don't pray for luxury. We just pray for enough to survive and thrive as human beings. And in praying that, we remind ourselves how dependent we are on God, that everything we have is a gift. And we remind ourselves that we're interdependent on each other, that we're responsible for each other and for the world to be a bread-bearing community on behalf of those who have none. God, we want to be your will-doing, kingdom-coming people so folks will see you for who you are and run to you and not from you, and we need you to take care of us. That's what we pray. This morning we turn to the second of three requests in the second half of the Lord's Prayer of the stuff that we need from God. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, this is what we read. And forgive us our debts. We don't just need bread. We don't just need you to give. We need you to forgive our debts. If you read the Lord's Prayer in Luke, he just goes straight for the jugular. He says, forgive us our sins. (laughs) In all likelihood, Jesus, these books were written in Greek and Jesus spoke Aramaic and the Aramaic word for debt and for sin is the same word. That's how the Jews, the Jews would think about sin as debt. We owe God our allegiance. We owe God our devotion. We owe God our obedience. And yet we're constantly falling short. We're constantly uh, the word that kept coming to mind this week was shortcomings, not in the way we use it, like you know somebody's foibles or little character quirks or whatever. We keep literally coming up short in terms of what we owe God in, in our devotion and in our allegiance and in our obedience. We're in debt to God. And it's true of everybody. In in 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If If you think that the petition, forgive us our debts, if you think that the petition doesn't apply to you, you're fooling yourself, the Bible says. The truth, the understanding of what it is that God has called you into, the life that God has called you to live, that truth is not in you. You haven't internalized, you haven't absorbed it yet. And so to disabuse you of this notion that you don't need forgiveness, I recommend an exercise. Um, go and talk to your friends. <laughs> go and talk to your classmates and to your coworkers and to your boss and to your spouse and to your parents and to your kids and ask them to describe for you the difference between Jesus, who he is and how he lived, and you, who are definitely not Jesus. <laughs> and as soon as you begin to recognize that gap, you begin to see the debt that you owe. God. We owe God a debt, the early church fathers said, because we're obligated to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we don't give him all of that. I just think back to 
the series, last series we did on the Lord's Prayer, if you were around in January, called God Likes This. And we spent three weeks exploring the reality that whatever we do in our spiritual lives, in our religious lives, all of our, our giving and praying and fasting that we do or that we don't do, all of our worshiping and Bible reading and volunteering and living in community and serving the poor, all this stuff that gets wrapped into our spiritual and religious lives, our life with God, we talked about how much of it is wrapped up in the opinion of other people. That we care so much about other people's approval, we care so much about other people's respect and admiration, that we make all of our decisions about our spiritual lives, our religious lives, based not on what God wants, but what, on, what, what people want. Trying to be respectable and admirable to the people around us. We live for them rather than for God. We fall short of the devotion that we owe him, we, we fall short in our devotion to each other, in our commitment, our obligation to love each other as much as we love ourselves. Think about our heart condition series in the fall and all the ways that we talked about how we respond to each other so often with anger and bitterness rather than love and reconciliation. We look at each other with lust in our eyes rather than respect. We get so tempted to throw in the towel rather than fighting for our marriages. We, tipped, we take the smooth downward road of flattery and lies rather than taking the difficult uphill path of speaking the truth in love for each other's sake. We choose to fight for our rights instead of your rights we choose revenge instead of generosity. We choose to hate our enemy instead of loving them and praying for them and doing good to them, being a force for good in their lives. We fall so short of what it looks like to love each other as much as we love ourselves. We, we owe ourselves a debt. The ways that we have failed to love ourselves the way that God loves us the way that we mistreat our bodies in so many different ways, the ways that we have either starved or overindulged our mental lives, our intellectual lives. We've taken our faith and we've either made it an entirely emotional experience or an entirely intellectual experience. So we abuse our minds. We, we abuse our souls in the way that we leave all this emotional chaos unresolved and undealt with and unhealed in us. We abuse our spirits, we forget our spirits, and we forget to nurture the habits that keep us alive and filled with life. We, owe, we fall short of who we ought to be just to ourselves. And so the only choice that we have, the only thing that we can do is throw ourselves down before God and say, forgive us. Forgive us for falling short of who we were created to be and what we were created to do. The word forgive, like the word debt, is a word that comes out of the world of commerce. I mean, it actually literally is a word that means to release. And in the world of commerce, in the world of debt forgiveness, it means to release people from their obligations to their debt. To tear up the IOU, to burn the mortgage, 
to delete the debit side of the ledger and to say, it's okay, we're square. Don't worry about paying me back. And this is, Jesus says, this is all we can do. We can't pay back the debt ourselves. We could never, ever hope to write the, the balance, to create a, a reconciled ledger, ledger by now trying to do enough good things to balance out the bad things. That's not how it works when it comes to debt forgiveness. And you know that because you've been hurt by somebody and that person could never do so many nice things to you that you will forget the pain of the hurt they caused. It doesn't work that way. Forgiveness is the only way out. Besides, every time we try to do more good stuff, everything we do is tainted by sin. So the very best we can do is to pay our spiritual MasterCard off with our visa and basically pay off debt with debt and create more debt. Jesus says, no, the only option you have is to throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, I know I've fallen short. Please release me from this debt that I owe. And he does. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, when you were dead in your sin, you were dead to rights. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Listen to this. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. Paul says, there was a day when you stood in front of Jesus, hat in hand, holding the IOU of what you owed him. And he took it from you and nailed it to the cross and said, you're free to go. As one writer says, Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And God sets us free from the debt of our sin. And he does it in this incredible, majestic, amazing way. And in Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. The, the writer of the Psalms says this, that God has just totally wiped this sin away. It's funny, my kids have this thing that they do. I don't, maybe all kids do this. I don't know. I just know that my kids do this. My kids have this incredible urge to quantify things that you can't really measure. Right, they, So I'm in the kitchen doing dishes and somebody comes up the stairs and they're crying because with four girls, somebody's always crying, right? And so they're crying and holding their head and they come in the kitchen and say, sweetheart, what happened? You look hurt. And they say, well, I banged my head. And I say, well, are you okay? And they will say, well, it hurts this much. And I'm like, okay, is that a lot? You... It's hard to tell. You have little fingers. You have like a tiny hand. That doesn't look like a lot to me. You seem like you're probably fine. Why don't you go down and play? Or they'll say, well, you know, dad, it, it hurt me this much. And then I know, you know, this is a bigger deal. Or they like to put numbers on things. 
right? I'll grab one of the girls and I'll hug her and I'll say, hey, how much does your daddy love you? And they'll say, a hundred. Okay, is that like percent? Because I'd feel good about that or is that like the biggest number? You know, and then one day my one daughter said, a million. And then all of a sudden I felt really bad about all the 100s that I normally get. But they just, they wanted, they're trying to describe something. And that's exactly what the the writer of the Psalms does. He says, you want to know how much God loves you? It's not this much, and it's not this much. It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. So random scientific fact, the furthest galaxy that we've ever seen, you know, distance from the earth is 13.3 billion light years, which in kilometers is 126 and then 23 zeros. So it's like 126 trillion, 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 trillion. That's how much God, it's more than 100. That's how much God loves you. And because he loves you, he doesn't treat you the way your sins deserve. He takes that sin and he takes it away from it and removes it from us as far as the east is from the, you will never find it. Where he's put it, you will never find it. One, one text says that he buries it in the bottom of the ocean. You go looking if you want. It's like the world's ultimate scavenger hunt. You go try and find You will never find it. It is gone. It's gone. It's so gone. It's gone from his memory. In Isaiah 45, it says this. I, God speaking, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God doesn't even remember your sins. He's not keeping track. He's not keeping score. The only person who's counting how many times God has forgiven you for that same dumb decision is you. He's not counting. The Bible says love keeps no record of wrong. God's got no ledger on the go. It's not there. You're the only one who beats yourself up over this. In fact, if you were to say, God, forgive us our debts, and then like the next day you bump into God on the sidewalk, you're like, hey, dude, because that's how you talk to God. You'd say, listen, I feel really bad about yesterday. And God would look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you say, well, I did that thing, and then I had to apologize. I I don't remember. It's just gone, gone. My favorite story in the Bible on forgiveness, Luke 23, says when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus looks at these guys who are crucified, literally crucifying, for the number of times we say, man, I got crucified in there. No, no, Jesus was literally being crucified by these people. And he looked at them, and understood them. He understood their story. He, he stood in their shoes and he understood that as they looked at the situation, they didn't even realize the hurt they were causing. They didn't even get, they couldn't even process how evil and terrible and painful and awful this thing was they were doing. They just didn't get it. They didn't have the capacity to process it. And Jesus says, you know what? God, just forgive them. They can't help it. He didn't make them beg. He didn't make them grovel. He didn't wait until they clued in and realized what terrible people they'd been. He just forgave them like that. That's how God's forgiveness works. It is like complete and total. One uh, preacher said it's fully and finally and freely and forever. It's just gone. 
And so we come and we throw ourselves before God and we say, forgive us our debts, except Matthew 6, 12 actually doesn't stop there. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, uh uh-oh, because that's actually a different prayer request than the one that we've been talking about because it's asking God to forgive us and then there's this little as we clause. And what does that mean? And the word as could mean because. God, forgive me because I've also forgiven everybody who's ever hurt me. It could mean while. You know, at the same time as God forgive me um, in as much as I'm in the process of being willing to forgive everybody who's ever hurt me. It could mean in the same way. God, forgive me in exactly the same way that I extend forgiveness to everybody who's ever hurt me. God, I want you to watch me. I want you to watch how I forgive other people. And when they've sinned against me, I want you to watch how I do it. And that's exactly how I want you to treat me. Church father by the name of Augustine, who lived around 400 years after Jesus, called this the terrible petition. Because no matter how you skin it, what Jesus is saying is that in some way, God's ability to forgive you is conditional on your ability to forgive or your willingness to forgive the people who've hurt you. Who wants to pray that? I've read a lot of writers and scholars and commentators and so many of them have said in their writings, listen, what Jesus is not saying that you have to forgive everybody else in order for God to forgive you. That's not what Jesus is really saying. Really? Because in verse 14 he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But, and I'll read this slow, If you do not forgive others for their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. It seems to be what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's the only prayer request in the Lord's Prayer that comes with a clarifying footnote. It's the only one that gets mentioned twice just so that we don't misunderstand. Guess what? God's willingness to forgive you is somehow conditioned by your willingness to forgive the people in your life who've hurt you in such a way that if you are unwilling to forgive the people who have hurt you, you are in effect saying to God, God, please do not forgive me. That's big. And it's not because you have to kind of earn God's forgiveness by showing that you're a forgiving person. You know, my kids come to me and say, Dad, can I have a granola bar? Sure, unstack the dishwasher and then you can have a granola bar. That's not what, God, that's not what God's doing. I'll reward you for being a forgiving person. No, what Jesus is saying is this. Somebody, the person who's unwilling to forgive people who have hurt them. 
That's not a person who has ever truly experienced the forgiveness of God. See, kingdom people are humble people. They recognize just how broken and screwed up and depraved they are in a way that actually creates in them the grace that they extend to other people who are just broken and screwed up and depraved just like, just like them. The humility of asking for forgiveness creates the space where forgiveness can flow from you to other people. You see how that works? This is why, this is why the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our debts first. Jesus says, come before God and honestly, just for a minute, honestly admit how screwed up you really are. Just drop the act, drop the mask, drop the charade that everything's fine, that you've got it all together. Just, just let it go for a minute and, and stand before God, exposed and vulnerable and honest and ashamed of the kinds of choices that you make in your worst moments and say, you know what, God, this is me. This is what I'm like. And I need you to forgive me. God, don't punish me. Have pity on me. And what the kingdom person does, having prayed, God, don't punish me. Have pity on me. The kingdom person can't then stand up and say, yeah, but look at that person. Don't have pity on them. Punish them. God, I... I want mercy, not judgment, but they deserve judgment, not mercy. That just doesn't compute. If, that, if that's the, your attitude, the person whose attitude towards other people is, they, I want to see them get what they deserve. That person, then that's just evidence that they've never really repented. They've never really humbled themselves. They've never really thrown themselves at the mercy of God's court in heaven. All they've done is plea bargain. They've tried to negotiate a lenient sentence. They've never grieved the, the brokenness of the choices they've made, the ways that they've hurt other people. They've never, they've never felt that sorrow. They've never rejected that kind of behavior. They've never thrown themselves on the mercy of God and said, God, please make me a different person. Because if you had if you've done that, if you've been honest about how, who you are, you have to have grace for other people who are just broken like you. And that doesn't, by the way, Jesus isn't saying, get over it. He's not saying, how you got hurt doesn't matter. He's not saying that the injustice that you suffered was inconsequential. You should just, you know, get over it and move on with your life. No, that hurt and that pain, that does matter. That injustice that you experienced, that does matter and it hurts and it's not so easy to move on and Jesus knows that. He's not saying it's gonna be easy to forgive. It wasn't easy for him to forgive. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he threw himself on his face before God and he begged God to not make him go through with it, to not make him go through with dying on the cross. Because forgiveness is costly. It's an incredible sacrifice. It's painful. It's just hard. It's hard to 
as the person doing the forgiving, like Jesus, it's hard to absorb in yourself the pain of the injustice of being punished as the innocent party while the guilty party goes free. I think forgiveness at some level, the process of forgiveness always hurts the person who's doing the forgiving. No wonder we find it so hard to forgive. And I don't think that Jesus is saying you have to have perfectly arrived at the end of having forgiven everybody who has ever hurt you before God will even entertain the notion of forgiving. I think Jesus is just saying you have to be a forgiveness kind of person. You have to be a forgiving kind of person to be a forgiven kind of person. But when you are, and when you make that choice to be a forgiving kind of person, that's the most revolutionary choice a person can make. That's life and community and world transforming that kind of choice. It's drawing a line in the sand and saying, do you know what? In my life and in my community and in my relationships and in my world, sin and hurt and pain and injustice does not get to have the last word on how things are going to go. Love God's kingdom is gonna come into my life and my relationships and my community in the world and we are gonna flood my relationships and my community with love and peace and joy and hope and healing. God's kingdom is going to come because I'm gonna be a God's will-doing kind of person like Jesus who in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified said, not my will, but your will be done. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna say, you know what, God? I will absorb the pain. I will shoulder the hurt. I will make the sacrifice to be a forgiving kind of person so that your kingdom can come in love and joy and peace and healing so that the cycle of revenge and anger and bitterness and retribution can just stop and we can be set free to be the people that you've created us to be, to be the community you've invited us to be, a kingdom community of forgiven and forgiving People. People who are forgiven as we forgive others. And people who forgive as Christ has forgiven us. It's harder. And it's painful. And it's costly. And it's revolutionary. And it's how the kingdom comes. And it will set you free. Lewis Smedes once wrote that forgiveness is like setting a prisoner free and only to discover that the prisoner was you. And that's what we want to give you a chance to do this morning. To come before God in a minute. The host at your location, the band is going to come to the stage And it's going to walk you through an exercise where you will have the opportunity to bring somebody that you've been struggling to forgive before Christ and to say, Jesus, 
Help me to forgive as I have been forgiven. Let me become the kind of person who forgives just as you have forgiven me. Let your will be done so your kingdom can come and people can see how good and beautiful and just and loving and powerful you are and run to you instead of from you. Take this moment as a forgiven person to be a forgiving person.